0: I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Kevin McKenna shows up today to tell us a little bit about his partnership at Louis Dresner McKenna, where he forged several things, including a wonderful Italian wine selection. Nice to see you, sir. Nice to see you too. Uh, you started in restaurants.
1: Uh, so I was uh, working in restaurants, and um, actually I, I, the first time I got the wine bug, I was working uh, during college in summer at a resort up in uh, on Lake Champlain in Vermont. Uh, it was sort of a, a cruise ship that never left land. <laughs> um, very moneyed, uh, old, old guard. And the crew uh, came up in the summers from uh, from Boca Raton, from the Coral Gables, I think, it were the Gables in in Florida. And the first year I was there, they, uh, the sommelier was uh, a guy named Walid, who was Lebanese and went to the Sorbonne in France, and uh, was really Really well versed in wine, but what he liked to do most was play backgammon and, and smoke joints. Oh, okay, mongs. <laughs> <laughs> so we hit it off really well. Yeah, so you had some, <laughs> some things. To... <laughs> and he loved to talk about wine, and so I started to learn things uh, from Walid. Uh, with a small group of friends, uh, we became more interested. Uh, I ended up uh, working at a. Mm, Restaurant in Western Massachusetts where I was in college, which was probably one of the best restaurants in the in the region, and uh, they started promoting a wine program there and and I was just a waiter, but uh, uh, they started giving us seminars on on wine and I sort of got more and more interested in it and so it was always something that I was very interested in. Uh, I worked in restaurants in new york uh, Manhattan Market, windows on the world uh, which were high wine culture restaurants at the time
0: what was the vibe like at windows at that time
1: uh the vibe at windows was well you know it was uh very interesting i mean kevin was in charge of the wine program um what's his name from the wine spectator was there at the time too and uh andrea okay andrea Amher. amher started uh there about the same time that i was there and uh, so it was. A, it was an amazing, I mean, amazing seller at at Windows on the World. And I, I could also go as an employee and have a big discount. So I'd go and with friends and order up some great old Chablis and uh, do it up. It was great. Um. So I, but I got sort of burnt out on restaurants. I was doing other things and realizing I wasn't really making a living. I was spending all my money on doing my art and. Uh, so I traveled to Europe in uh, 1987, and I went to a few wine places in Hungary and uh, in Italy, and uh, sort of loved it. I, I, I wanted to find a way to go back there, and so I
0: because it wasn't your primary reason for going.
1: No, it was not. It was you know to travel and and to see and see friends who lived in Paris at the time, and
0: you've been doing some work in film. Yes, and that and, was kind of more
1: of yeah, I was more interested at the time in in doing that. And um, so I came back and I needed to find a job. I almost went back to Windows on the World in the wine program. But I decided to start working in the wine business from the ground up. And in in those days, the wine business was really like still a guild. You you started from the bottom, you apprenticed, you showed your stuff, and then you moved up. And uh, from then on, I was in the right place at the right time. And so, um, Aster. Yeah, I was at Morell's, then at Astor, uh, uh, where I took over the buyer's position in '89, and I was there till '93 in the buyer's position. That's when I met Joe and Denise. Because that was
0: time. pretty happening in place Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I mean, yeah. At the time, it was uh, yeah, largely through the previous buyer, Carol Zanoni, and and me, we we made a, a significant mark in in the quality of the wines that were being presented at at Astor at the time. And, um, you know, at the time, there weren't all these amazing importers that there are now. There was just a handful. There was Robert Chatterton. uh, Becky Wasserman was just starting. Uh, uh, There really wasn't the mark of, like, a great importer. Neil Rosenthal was just starting. He still had his uh, retail store up here in the pre-side.
0: So it was like Kermit? Chatterton.
1: Yeah, Kermit Kermit wasn't even available on the All East on Coast. on the East Coast. Not even available on the East Coast. Nobody knew about Kermit wow. out here. Uh, until Michael Skernick started. His so it was like in the in like 1980 what year? 91, 91 or, or thereabouts? That, that,
0: so it was like Chateau in the States kind of world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um Abdullah Simon was still, you know, much revered and, and a great importer. Um and uh, so uh, there started to be a blooming of of small, independent indie kind of importers, Joe Dresner being one of them, Victor Schwartz, uh, who else uh, a bunch of, and then Kermit was available here in the the states, Neil Rosenthal. And uh, so I, I met Joe and Denise uh, just when they started their business. We were one of their first customers. Carol, the buyer before me, had placed an order with them, and then she left. Uh, Joe and Denise called me with an emergency meeting. They really wanted to meet me, and uh, it turned out they were very, very worried that I was going to cancel the order. Cancel the, whole the order, yeah. <laughs> and I said, rest assured, it's fine. Uh, I, I absolutely trust Carol's taste, and and from then on, this, the wine came in, and I loved them and, and was really interested in working with them more closely.
0: So who, who were they bringing in at that time? Uh,
1: they were, really had a, a set of wines from Burgundy, Burgundy Costa, right, and Macon. Uh, the Loire Valley didn't come till later. And I, you know, as soon as they started Loire Valley, I was one of the first to get on board with that. Marc Olivier's first vintage. I, I adored, I asked Joe to, if we could get some of his Gros Plants. He went back to Mark, and Mark was like, does he, want Gros Plants? Um, <laughs> I'm not selling him any Gros Plants. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Yeah, he was probably, and subsequently, you know, he ripped up all his vines. Oh. Um, but yeah, it was, the, it was also the beginning of uh, these, these country wines of France being more and more available. Uh, up until that time, there was really no interest. In wines from the Roussillon and wines from the Languedoc, and in, in wines from you know obscure Appalachians in the Loire Valley, and I think you know David Lily and I were were their biggest customers for for Loire Valley wines
0: and David was a garnet at
1: the da- David was a garnet at the time, and um, so I worked closely with uh, Joe and Denise with what they were doing, and you know asked them you know for certain things to find for me that I needed at Astor and that I wanted to have, and they were great I mean they were just really great. I ended up leaving there I went to um, graduate school out of the country for a couple of years, and uh, came back and uh, Joe and Denise had really built their company to a point where they wanted to be more national importers and so I helped them for a couple of years grow the market we opened California and a few other states. Which took a lot of work at the time because California was really a close market. There was Kermit and Martin uh on the east coast that really dominated any kind of uh import market. on the on the west coast. On the west coast, I'm sorry. And
0: you lived in Rome in the interim, right? Yes.
1: Uh-huh. So, okay. I was doing a business degree in Rome. Um and uh actually at the time went to see a, a bunch of wine producers, John oh, okay. From the, like that was back in what, nineteen eighty three. Wow, kind of early days for him. Him being, yeah, yeah, a, instead yeah. of Paolo. Yeah, he had just taken over from his dad, and uh, I I had bought the wines from Neil, and loved them, absolutely adored them, and it was a great, great visit. Um, his mom made you know the famous uh, crostata that she made for <laughs> for any guest that came to the house, um, and uh, so I came back. And I worked uh, on a project with Aster for a while on a freelance basis. John Osborne was the uh, buyer at the time. Uh, took when over. was
0: the Jeff Connell era? Jeff after?
1: Connell was uh, after John Osborne. I oh, It was okay. about 90, uh, 98.
0: Got it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. I just never, was, never had that straight in my mind. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, uh, or maybe 2000, thereabouts. Yeah, maybe about 2000. Um, and uh, Joe and Denise were looking for somebody to help them Open up a larger uh, market. Uh, we did, and then in '95, uh, they wanted me to come on board full time, and um, that's when we formed a partnership together. And we were partners. We formed an even partnership in '96. So for all those years, I mean, we spent uh, we spent all our time in France, and, and that was Joe and Denise's comfort zone. They they, they both spoke French. Um, they had a house. They had a house in the Macon where they spent the summer. Uh, and you know, my, I was always interested in Italian wines, especially, you know, Bea and, and obscure Italian wines, uh, where did and that great Nebbioli.
0: Interest, uh, develop. You know, where did the interest in...
1: Italian... At Aster, at, yeah. at Morels, yeah. I was really in charge of the, when I first started there, I was in charge of the Italian section and Carol Zanoni was a, was a great fan of Italian wines and, um, yeah. So, and you know, Winebow. And Peter Matt was at Winebow at the time, finding incredible Italian wines and bringing them in. Uh, and and so it was it was really interesting to me because the diversity of the, the diversity of the soil, the diversity of the grapes were so were you know unparalleled um, with other countries in terms of quality and diversity.
0: Because it seems like fairly quickly <clears throat> you kind of uh, went away from the. Tuscan model, which was so popular Mm -hmm. and you kind of searched out more obscure Mm -hmm. things. What in that search was important to you?
1: Uh, we, we always, you know, we, we, we did that in France. We were always searching for, uh, sort of avant-garde or, or off the, off the grid kind of wines and grapes that were, uh, were really, uh, Indicative of the place and of the grape, and had a purity of uh, fruit and a purity of soil. So that was something that was already embedded in Joe, Denise, and I. The three of us had a, a, a have and had a, a um, very similar sort of taste profile. There were you know tweaks here and there, but we we knew when we found a great wine that we had found a great wine. We all knew it, and um, so the same thing in Italy, I think it was more interesting for us to to not battle the sangiovese and the nebbiolo uh market it was better for us
0: because in important and more interesting yes, entrenched
1: in and more areas. interesting for us personally to find uh authentic grapes
0: cuz originally you didn't even want a barolo but then someone approached right, you
1: right uh, we didn't want originally we didn't want to have a, a barolo but uh yeah. Uh, Baldo Capilano approached us, and we approached him, and we hit it off so so well. He was a, a like-minded uh, personality and perfect for us, and, and we loved the wines. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the model, I, also at the time, I think the market was saturated with uh, Chianti's and Sangiovese-based wines and uh, Super Tuscans, which were n- of no interest to us whatsoever. Um, it also finding these these country wines were were more the vinaiolo kind of wines that we were looking for. So
0: what do you mean by vinaiolo?
1: Uh a vinaiolo is there's no word for that in in real English or or really even in French. It's a um it's somebody who works the soils, grows the grapes, makes the wine just from from beginning to end. Uh so you know not we say grower we versus say, winemaker. right uh but but a combination of both yeah. because they were they're hands-on. And you know, you can say paysan racoltante in French, but but that's two words you put together. You can say that. Can say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's really paysan is like saying contadino in in Italian, which is uh which is peasant, which is mm-hmm. a, a country mm-hmm. bumpkin. And um and but the vignaiolo, the, the 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 term is really really specific in in Italy, and it really represents somebody who, who does all the work. And so for us, it was more much more fun to find these kind of people, uh, and and the wines were much more interesting. They tended not to uh, do anything to the wines. Uh, they tended to work as as cleanly as possible in the vineyards, to not do anything in the cellar. To not use uh, a major part of new oak, mainly because they couldn't afford these things, these things are expensive um, treatments uh, chemicals uh, fertilizers, new barrels that's all a big expense
0: that's an expense,
1: yeah, that's... and they had a small local market uh, you know they were known in their particular region for for having you know among the best of the uh, best of the regions.
0: How important is it when you search out that uh, when you search out growers, that they have a local following,
1: is uh, that something you consider? No,
0: no, no. So if there no, making... there's
1: people uh, I know, I mean, Eric I can't sell wine in France.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> well, claims, that's a prime example. Yeah. Uh,
1: but uh, no, it's not. It's not. It's uh, not intrinsic. A mm,
0: no. So how did you go about developing the Italian portfolio for Dresner? Because it seems such uh, like a great thing. Right.
1: We were uh, approached uh, in France at, at uh, a famous uh, wine tasting called the Deep which happens in, in February, January, February every year in the Loire Valley. So you were was It was originally, uh, was, was, <laughs> was originally um, uh, put together by Pierre Breton, who okay. we worked with at the time. Pierre and Catherine were in, in charge of uh, creating the Bouté, and it started in Bourgois. Uh, and um, there was one lone Italian producer who was invited because she made Moscato d'Asti, which is a uh, huge market in France. The French love Moscato d'Asti. And they were the best of the of the best Moscato makers. And um, uh, Alessandra Berra approached us at one of these tastings and said, you, uh, you guys have to be working with me and we have to work together. And uh, she did that a couple of times. We were like, no, we're not ready, we're not ready. Joe and Denise, were, it was totally outside of their comfort zone. They, 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 they were didn't used speak to fr- They didn't speak Italian. They didn't really know Italian wines. So ultimately, Alessandra, they liked Alessandra so much that we started working with Alessandra. And it was, it was the beginning. Alessandra really was, uh, Alessandra and her brother Gianluigi were really uh, uh, responsible for... For convincing Joe and Denise, I tried, but they they really put it over the top with them, and so I organized a trip uh with the help of alessandra in uh one january, and uh joe denise uh and I did a tour of Italy of great producers and um Denise and Joe fell in love with the with the land with the people with the grapes with the food with the culture. And and realized it was an amazing opportunity because more and more we weren't able to, or we were in competition for the winemakers that we wanted to work with in France. In France. So for us to to grow, it was a natural progression to work with these uh, like-minded producers in Italy.
0: And what was the scene like? It seems like it's gotten started a little Oh, little at later. the
1: time it was very, very small. Uh, uh, now, you know, maybe there's a hundred plus, but at the time there were... So now, six or seven uh, until the year that uh, the that uh, Vini Veri and Angelino Malle uh, formed the show at Villa Favorita. Uh,
0: but compared to France, how many natural wine growers are there now compared to the? Oh, 100? France!
1: And, no, France is two to three hundred natural mm. wine producers. So there's and, quite a few more. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. Um, it's a it's a Italy is much be more behind the times, but still, still growing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And also there's always been the producers who produced the way that they wanted to, but nobody knew that, you know, there was no classification for that kind of, uh, that kind of winemakers. And so they, they got booted into this, into this camp of, of, uh, natural wine producers. And, um, so we found a number of producers, Stefano Bellotti uh, at Cascina degli Olivi. Uh, he
0: seems sort of pivotal, kind of an early...
1: Uh, an amazing guy, a, a guy who started in the 80s uh, using biodynamic uh, viticulture in his vineyards and, and uh, created a, a polyculture farm, uh, which was it was an amazing and, and continues to be really at, at the forefront of uh biodynamics and and uh, responsible culture in the vineyards uh, he's in really in charge of the Jolie School of Biodynamics in Italy now he 's the linchpin uh, in Italy for biodynamics and Nadja Varua Kashina who who is just starting I think it was her first or second vintage uh, uh Angelina Male, who had had a horrible experience in the United States and vowed he wasn't going to sell to the United States anymore, and we convinced him otherwise. Same thing with uh, Stanko Radicone. Joe and I went back for Vin Italy, especially for the show, the Villa Favorita show that Angelino Malle organized, and we met a number of other producers uh, through Angelino and and Stanko uh, Radicone.
0: Because I remember you taking on like Vecchia and mm-hmm. the portfolio really kind of growing in a fairly short period
1: of time. In a short period of time. These were, you know, wines that had been there are a few that had been in the United States they'd been here with Matthew Fioretti at sumovitas uh on the west coast and and available here in in new york uh, things didn't go so well uh so a number of those producers were wanting to do something different in the in the u s um, but it wasn't solely just you know uh picking up the dregs of a Summa vita's portfolio doesn't feel like that at a, all yeah, yeah. Oh. uh we, we we found other producers that right. were really outside quite a few of, uh, like outside of the mark
0: occipinti for it's like,
1: like ariano cupinti who's that was their second vintage we were uh completely enamored of the wines and thought they were terrific um uh and uh who else uh, uh silvia massana Secondo oh, who's sure. a friend of mine from new york who moved back to italy Took kind on of a farm started making wine and and really is making making really in exceptional wines in in Tuscany
0: and you've continued to bring on some things from uh, the like Valpicella area of, the Valpolicella yeah. mm-hmm. and you brought in uh, a, a new producer in the Vina Nobile area that was quite mm-hmm. good Podere San Giannetto
1: and uh, Heinrich and Nusserhoff
0: oh those ones are good
1: yeah um, so uh, yeah Heinrich was one of the first people that we worked with it was uh, that was an amazing find. Um, uh, really uh, incredible, and always one of my favorite. I had been to Bolzano in Italy, gone to see Alas Legator a long, long, long time ago, and uh, was really enamored of the of the wines. And the it, we really like the the three of us really like the the mountain grapes of of sure. Italy. Um, they really hit a sweet spot with us, and uh, so that that was a perfect perfect fit for us.
0: Somebody else that. Is in the north, uh, Radicón has done a lot of work with uh, skin maceration, kind of famous mm-hmm. for that. Do mm-hmm. so you want to tell us a little bit about sure. how that works out?
1: Sure. Well, you know, there's the what's called the uh, Slovenian mafia. <laughs> they are all on this one road outside of Gorizia, which is on the border of Slovenia. And at the time, you know, Slovenia was cut off from uh, from the Europe up until just a few years ago, and uh, there was this one road leading from. Uh, Gorizia, Slavia, which uh, led into Slovenia. And these people all had Slovenian roots. They'd gone back and forth between Italy and Austria and, and uh, Slovenia during, after World War I. And, uh, but they all had a like-minded uh, kind of philosophy. They all wanted to make wines that they remembered their grandparents making and the way that grandparents make. So across the street is Jasko Gravner, and uh uh there's a a number of other producers there um uh Daria Princic uh uh really uh who all had a like mind to create these wines the way that they are they remembered wines being and so um so part of that was to do skin maceration um the reason being the idea being that through the skin maceration of white wines, treating white wines as if they were, finifying them as if they were red grapes.
0: Because mm-hmm. that's the technique we that's would use basically for all the, red wines.
1: It's basically the same technique you would use for red grapes. Allows you to use less sulfur because you're extracting uh, antioxidants. I didn't realize that, that yes. part of it. And um, the reason why the Radicon do three years is because they, they did number of different experiments of, of time on the skins. On the
0: skins of the maceration.
1: And with, with testing to see what the antioxidant levels were in the wines, and they found that the three-year period was the the period that really gave uh, stability to the wine.
0: But more recently, they introduced something that was macerated yeah, for less
1: time. Right? It's They've done some wines that are macerated for less time. Those are uh, quaffable wines that are supposed to be drank uh, early. These like are, less these tannic. Are, yes, yeah. uh, less tannic and and need less time uh, to develop and are not really meant to last as long. Understood. Uh, unlike Gravner, who gravitated towards, uh, making wine the way the ancients did. (laughs) Okay. Which was using, starting to use amphora. Okay, like clay. Yeah, clay pots, uh, like the Greeks and the Romans used. Uh, Radicon wanted to firmly stay within his family history. And the family history was always using, uh, very large, uh, uh, Slavonian uh, Slavon Slavonian oak barrels. Okay, right? big difference between Slovenia and Slavonia. <laughs> I get
0: it mixed up all the time. <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, and so that was his method, and he's not really interested in in using amphora. Uh,
0: but you do have producers in the stable who use a little clay. Sometimes yeah,
1: we do. We you know it's crazy. I think we have a a number of producers who are who are using or starting to use amphora. We have. Uh, we work with Elisabetta Foradori, who has moved all of her single vineyard wines to to amphora that she buys in Spain. Uh, we work with uh, Cristiano Cudaro, who's in Puglia, who uses uh, clay that he gets from Deruda, but he's trying to buy wine, uh, clay pots from Georgia. Uh, we work with Cantina Giardino in Campania. Uh, all their clay pots are handmade by uh, uh, Daniela, who's the the wife of the winemaker she has a degree in pottery and she creates oh, I didn't know that. she creates all the amphora that they use for um for their uh finifications and uh, who else uh, does panavino uh, use clay sometimes no, no okay never. so uh, it's orange it's, but not it's all barrel, yes and uh who else uh, silvio silvio uh Masana at monte secundo is doing sangiovese we're releasing his sangiovese and amphora this year i, I awesome, did not know that which is awesome and um, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, idea. Uh, Dominique Hovet, who uses the concrete egg, which is really this big uh, fan, uh, really a, a, a facsimile of a uh, amphora. Use. Sure. Um, what you get is you know these whole grapes in an amphora clay pot, sealed, and the grapes just start fermenting within the grape uh, and start extracting from within. There's a constant movement in the amphora because of the shape of the amphora. So you don't have to, uh, at a certain point, you do punch down, but at a certain point, you close it and it's a constant. It's a constant. uh, It's intercellular. Yeah.
0: And it doesn't.
1: It's intercellular and it's also in a movement. It's also uh, a constant uh, remiage. I did
0: not realize that. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to like stir it up, it Uh, does its own thing. Right. What do you think some of the characteristics in the glass of an amphora wine uh, that we could glean from? Those versus some of the more conventionally made wines.
1: Well, obviously they're not going to be as uh, clear. Yeah. <laughs> not <quite> as <laughs> not, yeah, not quite as white. Uh, not quite as limpid as mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they say. Um, uh, there's going to be a um, a deepness of color, whether white or or red. Um, but what I what what I find is really interesting in some of the amphora wines is that there is a um, a wholeness to the flavor. And a brightness, uh, a freshness of the fruit uh, that's unlike anything that you can get in, especially in stainless steel, uh, but also in in even old neutral big barrels.
0: Because it's kind of like that completeness that happens with old wine Mm -hmm. that's aged a long time in the cellar, Mm -hmm. but it's brought it forward in a way. Sometimes I feel like there's a... They're
1: they're always plush and forward too. They're always accessible. Right. Uh, You never find that they're... uh, the tannins are always rounded, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, they're and they're extremely drinkable mm-hmm. wines.
0: What do you tend to pair them up with at the table if you're opening up something that's been aged in clay? Let's say, for instance, uh, it started with white grapes.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I you know I I think I'm a firm believer in keeping food as simple as possible uh-huh. and as fresh as possible. Uh-huh. And I think that if you match basically you can match anything if you're if the quality of your ingredients matches the quality of the ingredients of the wine. I'm I'm fair big, enough. big fan of uncomplicated food.
0: <laughs> so, uh, you just uh broached into Germany speaking of kind of pioneering new areas for the company. Uh what's that been like?
1: Uh it was a it was a real revelation for us. Um uh, we were approached by uh uh an estate in the, in Falz. Uh they wanted to have a national importer. Uh it's people that we knew well and uh and I was, you know, well, I don't really think that's uh, going to ever be a possibility. Um, at the same time, we were approached by another group uh, whose uh, importation had sort of fallen apart here uh-huh, in the United uh-huh. States. And um, Denise and I did a big tasting with the wines, uh, um and Maya uh, Peterson, who works for us, also was there, and we tasted the wines, and we found them revelatory in uh, in flavor profile for German wines. Something that you know Joe never really cared at all for right. German mm-hmm. wines, um, but he did care for this one producer that Clemens Bush that we will start working with. He thought the wines were.
0: Who's no- interesting. notable for using low sulfur.
1: Who's notable for using low sulfur and doing dry fermentations. Mm-hmm. So you're not stopping the fermentations by a dose of sulfur to keep the sweetness. Um, and uh, so we tasted a, a, through a, a number of these dry Rieslings. And both Denise and I said, these are, these are amazing wines. And it's obvious the winemakers are very serious. We would be you know, happy to represent any of them. And uh, so quickly, uh, myself and Jules Dresner, De- Joan Denise's son, who works with us now, and um, Josefa Konkanen, who is our uh, national sales rep based in Chicago, did a quick trip to, to Moselle to go visit these producers, and it was revelatory. Um, it's uh, an amazing soil with amazing, hard, hard-working winemakers, and these winemakers are really producing something that's very, very outside the norm in... Uh, in Germany and in, in the Mosel, and falls.
0: So, who are some of the people you're going to be bringing?
1: Uh, we'll be working with uh, we'll be working with Clemens Busch, Clemens and Rita Busch, which I'm, mm. I'm thrilled about. Um, I, I think the wines are uh, really amazing. Uh, we'll be working with Gernot Coleman, who's taken over the historic estate of Imich Batterieberg.
0: I really love the wines uh, he's turning out yep. these days. I, mm-hmm. I think they're way under. He's really
1: yeah. yeah he's the. Uh, you know, I. I Tend to relate these people to to people that I know. He's the Texier of, <laughs> oh, he is of the Moselle, I think he's really uh, a really talented individual who uh, who's uh, sincerely making, you know, an overused term, Burgundian Rieslings, which is uh, really really interesting. And the soils are are really fantastic. His vineyards are really really fantastic. And uh, Matthias Knabel uh, up in uh, the the Mosel Terrassen. At Ross Mosel, Mosul. And uh, he's a young guy who's taken over his family's estate. Gernet, uh, he worked, Gernet was a uh, consultant uh, for a few years. And since 2008, uh, Matthias has been making all the, all the wines. Uh, they're really clear and precise and, and really beautiful expressions. And they, they have, uh, again, some amazing, amazing vineyards that are practically perpendicular. I mean, it's...
0: So when are we going to start seeing those wines come into the States?
1: Uh, well, hopefully, there's a pending possibility of a dock strike here. Oh. On the East Coast, uh, we're trying to get the wines on board. Uh, picked they up could have right been a now, Right you know? now, uh, so dock that they get strike. here before October 1st. So, uh, we're really hoping they'll be here before October. Cool. So, I think a
0: lot of times people now associate the uh, company, uh, Louis Dresner, kind Kenna so much with natural wine. But how did it get to that point? Uh, because you said that, you know, Joe originally yeah. was working a lot with Burgundy. We, we,
1: we've we always had trouble with the idea of being the um, the natural wine importer.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, the standard bearer. Because I remember <laughs> you guys did the what thing. We,
1: what we started with, when Joe, Denise, and I started the company, when Joe and I started working together, we came with a consensus that was... Basically, Joe's, through, through tasting uh, uh, a number of the estates that he'd worked with at the time, that we really, the ones that we really liked were all shared a commonality. Um, and there were two fundamentals, that they were hand harvested, that they weren't machine harvested. And that they were vinified using all of their uh, indigenous yeast. And um, we decided to only work with wines that were made this way. And that was our precept from the beginning. That's still our precept now. Uh, Because of that, it coincided that a lot of producers were finding themselves in the natural wine. Uh, It it led us to work with people who who were working organically, because in order to vinify using the natural yeast, you have to do good work in the vineyards. It's impossible if you're treating and killing your culture in the vineyards to get a full fermentation in the cellar. Um, so it led us to work with people working in organic, and then the biodynamic movement uh, really started burgeoning. And, uh, Catherine and Pierre Breton, some of the first in, in, uh, in France, in the Loire Valley, to, to be biodynamic uh, in the vineyards. Um, and uh, so it led us into this, this group of natural winemakers. And I'll subsequently, yes, we, we work with a lot of producers who identify themselves with the natural wine movement, but we also work with a lot of producers who do not uh do not ally themselves with this it's a it's a polemic
0: so a little bit about the polemic side I mean sometimes I feel like you guys are um, you know taken to the stake sometimes by writers uh, or maybe certain producers that you work with are um and you, you, one thing I find a little troubling is that how frequently words like uh like jihadi or uh um I don't know, like fanatic. Um, yeah. Fanatic sort of fanatical.
1: Yeah, yes. Fanatical around. winemakers. I, I've yet to meet a fanatical winemaker. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping someday to meet a fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it up. Uh, Mark Angeli comes pretty close. Uh, but I, I, you know, in the, in the, you would not find his picture in the Webster's, uh, uh, definition of a fanatic. Uh, he's, uh, He's more of an isolationist and a really true believer in what he does. Uh huh. Um, so yes, the, the, it, it, it's sort of this. Uh, Are we uncomfortable as a
0: culture with people who really believe in what they're? Yeah,
1: doing? I think so. I think I think there's a, a. It's it's so much easier to turn the tables and say that you know they're extremists. And, uh-huh.
0: Because they have a point of view uh, that they uh, uh, assert, uh,
1: that they assert and confront with.
0: Is it against? Uh, and perhaps
1: maybe at the beginning, a lot of them swung the pendulum a little bit far.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. But who knew but, how far you could go? until you, went you there, know, right? in
1: true Hegelian dialect, it's it's all coming back to a uh, uh, a real. You're the guy uh, who understands Hegel
0: that I always wanted to talk to. <laughs> I never never got it.
1: Um. So, uh. What was I saying? But I mean, is it against
0: the idea of luxury marketing of wine, lifestyle wine, to have an idea of oh, well, I, I really believe in this? Is that are those two things that we have saw kind of wine become? Uh,
1: I don't know. You know, uh, I could say Angelique. Uh, uh, I could say Angelo Gaia is like a fanatic in some respects uh-huh, uh-huh. for wanting to use uh, New Oak. You could say, you know, I, I have. Eminent respect for Bobby Catcher, but you could say Bobby Catcher's a fanatic for only letting people use, making people only use uh, new barrels. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so why last time around were those guys given the, yeah. the high five and now you guys were given the... fermenters,
1: et cetera, and rotor fermenters in You guys Piedmont, are given the stink
0: and, eye. Why, what's the
1: difference? I, I think, um, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. think uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's uh I I think it's a certain close-mindedness that we're experiencing on a on not just in the wine industry but but throughout, as a country as a country and as a culture.
0: Are people who are not used to the flavors of these wines? Do you find that they easily gravitate towards them, or is there sometimes some resistance to the kind of difference? Or uh, it, it
1: depends. It depends on the wine. It depends uh-huh. how uh how much the in your face the wine. is. Uh-huh. There's and, certain there's certain wines that you know I, I will never be, I believe will never be uh, a popular taste, but
0: but, that's but maybe they're not still so fascinating to, and to the people
1: yeah. who really can see that the wines are a fascinating example of uh, of uh, analogy. Do you
0: think it's somewhat easier then to understand some of these wines if people don't have the background of conventional wines?
1: I think yes. Our you know our biggest market and the rise in our market when we started and we started talking about natural yeasts and and hand harvesting, you know, people were like, "Who cares? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Who cares? What does the wine right. taste? Like? Right? Or what's your points? You know, right? What were the points, points scores? Yeah." yeah. And so it was difficult. Uh we had uh you know a whole set of uh lazy distributors, lazy retailers who sold wines on points. You know, the points came out in Parker and they sold all their you know Spanish wine for that day. That their complete portfolio. They sold it out only because of the points. And that's how the the uh retailers bought. That's how not so much restaurants, but retailers tended to buy who buy you know a lot more sometimes than restaurants and um, so it became this culture of you know wine spectator wine advocate uh, Tans are not so much um, but but uh, but still very very influential and um, you had a, a new generation within the past 12 years or so who Never had that culture because uh, the wines that the wine advocate talked about, the wines that the wine spectator talked about, reached a a price level that was completely out of anybody's, any normal person's uh, pocketbook. And uh, so these wines weren't of interest to them because they couldn't afford to drink them. And it was more of looking at wines that were affordable, which we tend to have a lot of. And that, uh, that really spoke of uh, purity. That really presented uh, a profile of what I like to think is, is more alive in your mouth. Uh, you know, uh, an overworked wine always, to me, tastes dead. Uh, mm-hmm. It just sits in your mouth and you really can't drink more than a glass of it, if forced. And uh an alive wine just is bright and, and keeps you coming back to the glass and keeps you coming back to your food and keeps you coming back to the glass. And and um so this whole new generation are not influenced by you know Parker. They're not influenced by the wine spectator so much anymore. And you know, our our big success is among the, the people who really open their eyes and 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 open their palate and really take a look at the wines. In a more holistic and less critical, less breakdown—you know—the flavor profile, break down the beginning, middle, and end of the wine, and really look at the holistic aspect of the wine and how it tastes in your mouth and and what kind of uh, what kind of impression it gives.
0: So, as as maybe the sommelier age in New York has gotten younger, have you seen a, kind of a, a growth in,
1: in and? Yeah, as the wine director age level gets younger, we see a little bit more interest in, in these wines, as long as they have a public to support it. And, you know, I've seen people try and, and fail in or a lot, lots of markets. Criticized uh, widely. Yeah. And when we really started, I mean, the, in the, the market for these kind of wines was really concentrated in New York. At like was Red much, Hook
0: three sixty.
1: Well, yeah, even like at three sixty. Yeah. And Chamber Street wines. Um but
0: like uh, at one restaurant and yeah, one, one retailer. One retailer. Right.
1: Um but slowly throughout the country you had uh, you had small pockets of the resistance, which I like to term. And uh
0: A Princess Leia is one of my favorites on Absolutely. She's so gracious
1: at uh, the yeah, table. Yeah especially when she wears her hair up <laughs> instead of on the side. <laughs> well, she can't hear when, I, when she wears it on the side. No, but you talked
0: a little bit about wine being alive in the mouth. <laughs> One of the things that I think of as really kind of bright and, um, I mean, really it is bubbly, is, is pet nat? That's, yeah. that's something that seems somewhat alive. Uh, but I think it's a category that maybe uh, takes some explaining.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a really interesting um, uh, success that was a a sort of winemaking that could have been lost, I think. Um, It certainly uh, was widespread throughout Europe. Um, It is, to to explain Petnat or uh, Method Ancestral or Method, you'd say, Refermentazione ancestrale in Italy, um, is really uh, the old way of keeping wine pre-sulfur. Uh, You left the difference between it and a metodo classico is that metodo classico or Champagne, méthode champagnoise, is a second fermentation, there's two fermentations. Petnat is the the primary fermentation and in bottle. Um, So, at the time when people didn't have, I mean, the rise of sulfur wasn't until the end of the 19th century. Uh, shortly after Phylloxera, people tr- tried to use sulfur against uh, the Phylloxera. And uh, up until that time, people made, especially in the countryside, made wines like this, with a, bottled with a little bit of the sugar. The fermentation uh, happened in the bottle. It created uh, natural carbon dioxide, and the wines lasted. Uh, but they would always have a, 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 a petience to them. Uh, and... Uh, so you know, there were only a few areas of the world where, through the in, in, the wine industrial age, the post-war wine industrial age, where that kind of method really, really held up. Uh, one of those places is Emilia Romagna, uh, which it's always been the culture and continues to be the culture there for m- making wines that are uh, are freezing. Frizzante or Frizzantino. So we
0: would think about Lambrusco mm-hmm. as We like would think example. about
1: Lambrusco, which was practically destroyed by Rionidi and uh, Chilicella in uh, in the 70s. Um, but luckily there were some you know stalwart uh, winemakers. I remember going to, to Bologna and Emilia Romagna in the 80s and not being able to find a dry I found one dry Lambrusco, one producer who made a dry Lambrusco sparkling.
0: Was that Cristiano, everything else was
1: am- Amabile because they were following they were trying following the fashion of uh Reuniti and and so this this dry kind of Lambrusco almost almost was gone. Seeds also. To exist yeah. almost. Uh luckily it was revived. Um the pet gnat culture in in uh Loire Valley was really the responsibility of one guy, Christian Chossard, at the main le now at Domaine Le who was working in Vouvray at the time, and revived uh, pet nat. He was teaching. Uh, he teaches a uh, anology. Uh, vid- uh, yeah, teaches analogy at uh, somewhere in the Loire Valley. I forget. I think it's in uh, Amboise or somewhere. And uh, uh, at the time, researched this method and and was really one of the first to start making these these pet nats. And you know, subsequently Terry Pouzla really championed the, the idea of making these these wines also. And um, and then also, of course, in Cerdon de Bouger, in in the Bouget region, uh, you had people, uh, at one point, w- there was a distinct uh, division of those who made uh, method ancestral and those who, who made Charmat method of uh, Cerdon. And uh, you could only use the method ancestral labeling if you, use this primary fermentation in bottle um i I think they're they're inherently interesting interesting wines and extremely drinkable
0: if 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 it all turned out the way that you want it to turn out and the landscape in america were to alter uh for wine (laughs) and we're looking at 15 20 25 years down the road what does that america look like in terms of what it's drinking and what the oh i
1: don't really want it is. to change all that much our, <laughs> <laughs> our producers don't make that much wine <laughs> sure and in order to be able to work this way they can't have that much land the ideal you know the maximum i think is is 11 to 14 hectares so it's, it's supposed really to really like niche. the most yeah i think it will always be i think it will always be because there's not world. a way to I really think, commercialize it there really oh, isn't, and wow. I, it, if it gets commercialized, it'll get co opted uh, by industrial uh, winemakers, and that's the real danger, I think, down the road and i don't you know I don't know legislation's always a dangerous, slippery slope, and I think uh, ideas of labeling and certification, et cetera it's a it's a very, very slippery slope, uh, especially in this country where uh, you know our our wine labeling is run by the bureau of firearms um and really can't coordinate anything with uh the department of agriculture um yeah i i i i would hope it's not going to change that much i'd like i'd like uh a little bit more uh understanding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's so wrong with peace love and uh maybe uh uh a wider, wider throw, more, more comprehension that um, wine is is a is a food product, just the way we look at cheese is the way we look at uh, uh, produce that we buy at the farmers market, that we we look at wine with that kind of that kind of eye, that kind of uh, experience, um, because I think there's a real disconnect. It's getting better, but I think for for many years there's a real disconnect between wine and, and you know from whence it comes. One
0: that's of the things it. you said once was that uh, you uh, didn't think that it was necessary to run a company where you liked everyone you worked with, but what was the fun in not doing that? Like you, you really wanted to like the people you were working with. Is that something that still has maintained? Oh yeah,
1: that's a real big. Because <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> I, remember, I remember going around Joe Tasting and we'd go visit people or, or like some of these wine shows. Sort of like the wine, but Joe would go, "Look at that guy! You really want to work with that guy?" Because <laughs> there's a level where Dresner producers shallow. party Sometimes. together. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, we we like working with with people who are who are like minded. I mean, it's 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 not it's not a deal breaker, but it's real, real important to us. And subsequently, and we've created like a, I think a, a family of winemakers who are much more interconnected than they would be if they hadn't been working with us. Do you think there's, us. think there's been a
0: cross pollination?
1: I think there's been an amazing. For me, one of the one of the greatest things that our our company has been able to do is create this uh, cross dialogue, especially between Italy and France, where you know for. A lot the French are chauvinists and the Italians are jealous and and petty sometimes. <laughs> Not all the time. But uh, th- we've created this sort of uh, understanding and rapport between winemakers in different parts of Europe uh, that didn't really exist before. Uh, it was... Um, it's really heartening for me to see, you know, the the reason Ariana's wines are the way they are is because she knew Marcel Lapierre and Terry Puzlo. Um, uh, you know it, also she had a basis of working, you know, with her uncle, Justo Acupinti, of across, and also very good friends with Frank Conalissen in 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 uh, in, uh Aetna. And you know her wines wouldn't be as as really uh uh, compelling, if she hadn't had this experience. Uh, there's a, a number of uh, different producers. Eric Texier goes to visit people in Italy all the time to see what they're doing. Even Jean-Paul Brun uh, from Tertre, who's you know probably one of the epitome of of uh, a French vigneron, uh, uh, an incredible French vigneron, uh, but is his eyes are so much more open uh, uh, to winemaking in other cultures and having a rapport with, with people in other parts of the world. You know, I think really what's important for us is to work with winemakers who are um, always questioning, always trying to make their wines better, always, always thinking about it. And I think we happen to represent a lot of, I mean, almost all of our producers are constantly Constantly uh, thinking about their techniques or researching uh, uh, other uh, important parts of either viticulture or uh, or uh, winemaking in the cellar. Um, they're they're always uh, striving for for something better, and um, and that has tended to cross cultural lines now too, where people are discussing between themselves, you know, because for what works in in Chianti may not work in the Beaujolais because of soil climate, microclimate, et cetera. Uh, and you're dealing with, you know, different kinds of uh, humidity, etc. cetera. And, um, but there's a, a real, uh, a real cross interest in, in understanding what each other are doing. And it's really, really heartening to see.
0: One of the things I saw Dresden do really early in that is still, more talked about than emulated, is the idea of bringing all the growers to the tasting for the trade. So you would see 20, 30 growers pouring at the table meeting with the buyers in New York, which is not the normal. And now uh, we hear so much about, well, the grower, the grower, the grower, but it felt like when I first started my career, we didn't. Do you think that there has been a change partly because of that?
1: I uh, I mean, it was always fundamental for us that the grower was first, the winemaker was first, and getting to know these Winemakers, either through their wines or personally, was of ultimate importance. And uh, so, with that in mind, we we started bringing over as many producers as we could. Uh, the producers loved it because they, you know, got a week off to party in the United States and to meet their customers. And you know, the great thing I remember uh, when Françoise Tête, uh, the wife of Michelle Tête and, and Julianas, they came for the first time. Uh, you know, it was a time when Beaujolais was going through a really tough period. It was hard to sell, and they had a couple of really horrible, hard vintages. And they came here, and the wines were so appreciated, and the people who tasted them told them so, and and really talked to them. It was reinvigorating to them. It it changed. It changed the way that they look at their wines. It changed the way that they felt about what they were doing. Um, I've seen it happen with, you know, uh, children of winemakers who think, you know, oh, my dad's a, you know, pluk, he makes wine, and, and uh, you know, I I've never want to do that. I'm going to do something else. Who come with them here and see how appreciated and how much heroes, like Marc Olivier, uh, for instance, how incredibly treated they are here and revered. And they have a whole different idea of what their father's been doing these last fifteen years when he's working so hard in the vineyards and working so hard in the cellar and breaking his back and they don't have any money. And it changes the way that they they perceive the, the whole idea of the the their father's or the parent the father or mother's work and um and what it means.
0: Do you think that some of them have stayed in the wine business, as a result, whereas they may yes. have left, yeah, I know, inst- I know of a few.
1: I know of a few instances where where kids really wanted nothing to do with their parents' uh, business, and their minds have changed be- as a result of traveling with their parents and and seeing the reception and and what the job entails and and uh, what a great culture it is to to have this kind of. Uh, uh, conversation with your, with your customer, um, uh, and to be respected in such a way for doing hard, menial work. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate oh, it. you're welcome. Thank you. I can go back to my crossword puzzle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey.